Hello, everyone, and welcome to the TMA's Ask the Expert podcast series. Today's podcast is entitled Rheumatological Conditions with ADEM, NMOSD, PM, and OM. I'm Sam Hughes uh, from the Neuroimmunology Program at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and I'll be moderating this podcast today. The TMA is a nonprofit focused on support, education, and research of rare neuroimmune disorders. You can learn more about the TMA on the website at myelitis.org. This podcast today is being recorded and will be made available on the TMA website for download and for download via iTunes. Uh, during the call, if you have any additional questions, you can send a message, message through the chat option available with GoToWebinar. For today's podcast, we are pleased to be joined by Dr. Julius Birnbaum and Dr. Tracy Cho. Dr. Birnbaum graduated magna cum laude from Princeton University and received his MD from Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons. He earned his master's degree in clinical investigation at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Dr. Birnbaum is the only physician in this country who is board certified in neurology, internal medicine, and rheumatology. His clinical and research interests pertain to the neurological complications of rheumatic syndrome with a focus on Sjogren's syndrome. Dr. Tracy Cho is an associate professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School and director of the autoimmune and infectious neurology units at Massachusetts General Hospital. He focuses clinically on meningitis, encephalitis, and myelitis due to infections such as HIV and cystocercosis as well as neurological, neurological complications of systemic medical diseases like sarcoidosis and lupus. He also specializes in autoimmune neurological disorders, such as NMDA receptor antibody encephalitis and other antibody-mediated encephalitides. Welcome, and thank you both for joining us today. So before we dive into the questions that came from the community, um, I kind of wanted to uh, set a, kind of a foundation for us as we start this conversation. Um, uh, speaking for myself uh, as a, as a non-physician, uh, when I started into this world of um, immune-mediated conditions, uh, it was certainly a little bit confusing to me to be talking about uh, rheumatologic conditions versus uh, immune-mediated conditions and then central nervous system disorders that are immune-mediated and autoimmune disorders, and there was a lot of vocabulary um, that kind of uh, uh, meshed together and was slightly confusing, uh, uh, for me at least. And so I'm hoping that we can kind of, like I said, lay a foundation with kind of general definitions of, of what, when we talk about rheumatologic conditions, what do we really mean? Um, is that the same as autoimmune disorders, uh, or where is that, where are they different? Um, and then why are disorders like uh, neuromyelitis optica spectrum and transverse myelitis uh, and other neuroimmune disorders maybe not considered rheumatologic conditions, kind of where one ends and the other begins. So um, if you could, Dr. Birnbaum, I'll throw it over to you if you just kind of want to give us a little bit of an overview and foundation of what we talk about, what we mean when we talk about these disorders. Sure. So uh, thank you for having me. I agree with you that a lot of the terminology that's used in clinical medicine to categorize these disorders can be confusing. The unifying feature of all these disorders is that the immune system, which should be protecting us from infections and cancers, starts acting aberrantly. 
and this can result in different uh, diseases. So when we think broadly of the field of rheumatology, there's two facets to it. First, these are disorders which we regard as being musculoskeletal. So that could be pain in shoulders or back of uncertain origin. And those, such as osteoarthritis, who we consider to be not mediated by autoimmune disorders. So for example, osteoarthritis is more wear and tear, but the immune system is not acting aberrantly. The other hat of rheumatology does deal with uh, autoimmune disorders. The unifying feature of these autoimmune disorders, which make them rheumatological disorders, is that they are associated with so-called systemic manifestations. So for example, when you think of a rheumatic disorder, such as Sjogren's and lupus, these are autoimmune disorders, but in different patients, different organs can be affected. So this can include the heart, the lung, the kidney, and the uh, skin. Now, neurological disorders can occur in subsets of patients with rheumatic disorders. So again, I would define rheumatology as the practice of two facets. One is what we call musculoskeletal disorders, and one is autoimmune disorders. And the rheumatological disorders broadly can affect many, many different parts of the body. And when we have autoimmune neurological disorders occurring in patients with rheumatic diseases, the issue is what we call attribution. So specifically, is a neurological disorder specifically due to rheumatic disorder, or is the neurological disorder just presenting as a coincidental and secondary unrelated diseases? So hopefully that provides some sort of vista of what constitutes rheumatological disorders and what constitutes neurological disorders and how they relate to each other. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, uh, so our community who's listening to this uh, have by and large been diagnosed with one of these rare neuroimmune disorders, uh, you know, NMOSD, uh, TM, ADEM, um, that uh, tend to don't, aren't, really considered rheumatologic conditions, they're considered neurological conditions that are immune in origin. And then there are sometimes those patients who have Sjogren's or lupus that then, like you were saying, have a neurologic manifestation that we call a transverse myelitis or some kind of um, a, a brain or optic nerve uh, lesion associated with it. Um, so uh, we consider these, and please correct me if I'm wrong, either of you, uh, uh, neurologic disorders, if they are, you know, even if they're autoimmune in nature or immune-mediated in nature, if they are focused on the on um, the nervous system, either central or peripheral, um, uh, as opposed to maybe these uh, rheumatologic conditions like a lupus or sarcoid uh, that affect other organs, and then in a rare subset of patients also affect the central nervous system. Am I um, understanding that properly, or would you describe that differently, either of you, Dr. Birnbaum or Dr. Cho? I'm, I'm happy to. What are you? Go ahead, Dr. Cho. Thank you. Um, so I, I agree with uh, Dr. Birnbaum's uh, framework as laid out. I guess I would, to address your question, I, I think uh, we need to step back and, and define transverse myelitis, which is a syndrome. 
it can be due to many different diseases, whereas neuromyelitis optica is a specific disease due to a specific pathologic antibody which has a target within the central nervous system. And likewise, ADEM is, not, uh, is also a syndrome, but it, it lies somewhere in between the um, transverse myelitis term, which is quite broad and can be due to multiple different diseases. And uh, in MO, where it's such a specific diagnosis, ADEM is somewhere in between in that it is a defined by typically an acute one-time episode of inflammation uh, that from a trigger uh, firing the, the, audit, the immune system to target the, the myelin. So in re regards to the, the framework that Dr. Birnbaum laid out, if someone with lupus develops transverse myelitis, there is the question of whether the myelitis is attributed to the lupus or whether the myelitis is due to a separate process and as the, the topic for this webinar and, and many of the questions submitted suggest, there is a, a well-established link between NMO and other autoimmune diseases that affect other parts of the body. Um, and I think one of the sort of key points that we're going to get to today is uh, whether NMO is indeed part of that broader systemic autoimmune disease or whether it is a separate disease and uh, the, with the latter being my take on, on the question of NMO. So the, uh, the terminology really is confusing as, as you both have stated already and I think that we need to be you know, precise when we're talking about the attribution of transverse myelitis when we have uh, a clear cause such as an NMO versus when we're unsure of the exact cause um, before we can say whether or not it is related to a systemic disease process. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's uh, like, you, like we've been talking about, it, it can get pretty complicated. And I think from the conversations I've been a part of and observed, even with the, the clinicians and researchers talking, a, a lot of these conversations occur just trying to uh, define what everybody's saying, what they mean when they say it. Um, but it kind of uh, moves into, especially, uh, Dr. Toe, like you were saying, are, are patients who are diagnosed with NMOSD um, in particular, what we see um, um, in many cases is also an increased risk of what we call, you know, comorbid rheumatologic conditions or, or these rheumatologic disorders that happen at the same time that Aren't, that we don't think are related to the NMO. And without getting into, you know, all of the, the genetic underpinnings of why we think autoimmune disorders are connected as we're, you know, researchers are still working out, could, uh, uh, Dr. Cho, could you um, maybe speak a little bit to why we think that this comorbidity occurs uh, with autoimmune disorders, and then what really are those rheumatologic conditions that we do see associated with these rare neuroimmune disorders like NMO spectrum disorder? Uh, sure. So the the underpinning, I think, is like you mentioned, uh, in generic terms, a general tendency for the immune system 
to attack self as opposed to cancer or infection, as Dr. Birnbaum pointed out in his framework. And so it's well known that some uh, patients with a certain autoimmune disease uh, have increased risk for other autoimmune diseases, and it just varies from individual to individual uh, how that manifests in terms of the, the specific diseases they get and what parts of their body are affected. So uh, it's kind of a blanket statement, but certain uh, autoimmune diseases tend to run in packs, and so if you have one, there's a slight increased risk of having one of the others on the list. And for NMO spectrum uh, disorders, the, the most common associations are indeed with lupus and Sjogren's syndrome, um, but there are many others that uh, have been associated with increased risk. And it goes in both directions, meaning someone who develops NMO as their first disease could later develop and be diagnosed with a, a systemic autoimmune disease or someone who has a known autoimmune disease like lupus uh, has a, a slight increased risk in developing future NMO. And uh, the, the associations are not well uh, laid out in terms of the exact mechanisms, and we're not very good at predicting the exact risk associated, um, but those are the two most common. Um, I also think that um, we will learn more about this as we uh, better define the uh, underpinnings of these different autoimmune diseases in terms of specific genes. Uh, some of that is in the works, but uh, I think we've got a long way to go on that front. Mm. Um, so uh, back to you, Dr. Birnbaum. There are some questions that came in that are still kind of broadly about rheumatologic, rheumatologic disorders. Um, uh, like Dr. Cho was saying, there are some conditions that are associated with NMO and these disorders that, that our community lives with. Um, but how are these different rheumatologic disorders like Sjogren's or lupus um, uh, or rheumatoid arthritis even uh, diagnosed and treated? And then how are those treatments how do they differ or similar to uh, the, the um, uh, immune treatments that we see for the recurrent neurologic disorders like NMO? So another good question. Uh, the rheumatic disorders basically are defined by a combination of patient symptoms. What we find on the physical examination and blood markers usually and these blood markers usually confirm in some way the presence of autoimmunity. So there is there are disorders such as lupus which have protein symptoms and the diagnostic net is quite wide. But by and large there are certain cardinal features of for example skin manifestations such as lupus. I think everyone is familiar, most of us are familiar with a, a butterfly rash. And then it's again trying to go through different organ systems, tease out different diseases. So again, lupus, many different organ systems are affected. So we would ask, for example, is there hair loss? Is there uh, or are there ulcers in the nose or the mouth? Is there episodes of 
when you take a big breath, it hurts too much, or when you lie back, uh, there's pain in the in the uh, in the back, and that could uh, indicate inflammation in the lining around the lungs or the uh, the heart. Um, any history of kidney stones, any history of blood in the urine. So these are symptoms that could affect different organs that we try and and tease out. And then there's a physical examination, and generally we inspect uh, hair texture, hair loss. We look in the mouth. If it's Sjogren's, we are looking at whether there's adequate saliva in the mouth. We'll listen to the lungs. We'll want to evaluate whether something called a, a rub, which is grinding of lung or uh, heart against uh, different parts of the, the body. Uh, joint uh, manifestations are a particular uh, calling card of different rheumatic diseases. So we'll look at the, the knees and the elbows, the knuckles. We'll squeeze and evaluate for any tenderness. We'll see whether there's any swelling of the joints. So hopefully this is just to illustrate uh, in a and compelling way of how many different things that we need to assess in rheumatic diseases. But based on that, we have a formulation and we're able to siphon down to a few set of symptoms and, and examination findings. And then we look at the blood work. And by and large, there are certain abnormalities that are associated with diseases. So lupus might be associated with a very specific panel of antibodies and same as uh, rheumatoid arthritis. So again, at the end of the day, it's the patient's symptoms which matter the most and the history is the most uh, uh, illustrative and, and, and forming uh, feature. The rheumatic disorders, interestingly, are treated with some immunomodulatory agents that are similar, um, to, that are used for uh, transverse myelitis. So, Transverse myelitis, by and large, you want to suppress the immune system. So that paradigm of suppressing the immune system is similar to some uh, rheumatological um, disorders. The, the, there is also a subset of treatments which are called immunomodulatory disorders. And these are medications which don't necessarily suppress the immune system, but it modulates the immune system and behaving in a more a tolerant way. Those classes of immunomodulatory medications are tend to be more specific for rheumatological disorders um, as opposed to uh, transverse myelitis. So example, immunosuppressive medications, and that might include something called rituxam or omethotrexate or Celsept. Those are uh, medications that are shared between rheumatic and diseases. Um, Neuromyelitis optica, um, sometimes uh, ADEM, but certain of the immunomodulatory medications are more specific and have a specialized niche in uh, rheumatic disorders and are not more widely used in transverse myelitis. So again, some areas of overlap in terms of uh, disease manifestation and treatment, but uh, also some areas in which medications are specific for rheumatological versus uh, transverse myelitis. Mm -hmm. So um, kind of as a follow-up to that question, uh, when we were talking about uh, um, NMO spectrum disorder patients, you know, the, the uh, most common medications that they're on to prevent relapses are, like you mentioned, uh, um, rituxan, Celsept, and even Imuran from time to time. So 
Um, would you say that if if I'm an NMO patient and I um, then go on to develop Sjogren's or lupus or some other rheumatic condition and I've been taking rituxan or one of these other medications, would you as a rheumatologist seeing that, say, we're going to keep, you know, what you're on, what you're taking for the NMO covers this other disorder, um, and so we'll move forward with that. Or what circumstances would you uh, look at a patient with a with a long-standing diagnosis of one of these neurologic disorders who develops a rheumatic condition and say we need to work with your neurologist or add another therapy, um, uh, that kind of thing. Yeah, so that's an interesting uh, question. I think that if you have a rheumatic disorder um, that's breaking through a medication that you use for rituxam, what you're doing is exactly correct. You have to think about whether that leads to abortment of, of treatment for the um, transverse myelitis or whether you want to keep that medication on board. And I think a lot of it depends upon the severity of the rheumatic disease flare. So if you're diagnosed with new rheumatic disease, then it tends to be what we call musculoskeletal in nature and joint manifestations or sores in the mouth. I think then you'd try to keep the uh, immunosuppressive agent for rituxam on board, and it could be treated, the rheumatic manifestations could be treated with short courses of steroids and managed uh, in an expectant uh, way. Um, mm -hmm. In other cases, um, if there's severe disease manifestations, heart, lung, kidney, uh, then you would need to start uh, medications that are specific and effective for those rheumatic uh, diseases. And in those disorders, you would try to see whether you could come up with a regimen that would also be useful for minimizing risk of relapse and transverse myelitis. And sometimes we add to immunosuppressive agents um, when necessary. It wouldn't be the first step because of the risk of uh, infection, but uh, in situations in which you're kind of trapped in a corner, um, we have used um, two combinations of immunosuppressive therapies, uh, both successfully and also with a uh, tolerable uh, risk of uh, minimizing infection. So it depends upon the severity of the flare um, and what that rheumatic disease is. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, Kind of that kind of moves into uh, some other questions that came up about kind of this potential drug drug interaction, for lack of a better term, with these immune immune agents. Um, so I guess the first question is, uh, like you said, Dr. Birnbaum, um, many of the rheumatic conditions that can be comorbid with uh, NMO are um, can be managed by the same the same uh, immune uh, medications. Is there any rheumatic disorder that you might expect to see or would not be surprised to see manifest in an NMO patient that would require one of these more specific immunomodulatory, immunomodulatory uh, agents that are, that's used in the rheumatologic world um, that we don't necessarily see in the NMO world? Um, and if so, do you kind of go into more detail about concerns you might have about these interactions of medications. So you're saying are there specific immunomodulatory medications normally used for NMO that, used for rheumatic diseases that might be um, useful for NMO? Is, 
I just want to make or, sure that you or, well, useful or really even if you if, if there's a condition that's diagnosed alongside the NMO, rheumatic condition diagnosed alongside the NMO that normally would have a different, you know, not rituxan or self-sept or emuran um, medication use for it, is there concerns about uh, kind of the safety, like you were getting at before, of multiple immune agents used at once? So it's interesting. There is a widening net of therapies that um, might be useful for NMO and is used for rheumatic diseases. So, for example, um, the medication uh, Actemra, tocilizumab, um, mm. which is approved by the FDA for the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis. Um, it's being investigated for efficacy in NMO and has been shown to uh, greatly reduce neuropathic pain in NMO. So there is a reason to think that certain immunomodulatory medications that are just currently approved for specific rheumatic diseases might be more ubiquitously effective for NMO, and this is certainly a fertile area for, for research. When you combine um, two immunosuppressive medications, you do incur um, the added risk of an infection. But the point that I'd like to illustrate is that there's other um, autoimmune disorders, such as uh, inflammatory myositis, when there's inflammation in the muscles. Um, a subset of these patients could develop really, really debilitating and severe um, lung disease. And in these patients, two or three immunosuppressive agents are used, and there's a risk of infection, but I think at the end of the day, it needs to be uh, geared and towards how severe the disease is. And I think one thing to emphasize is a lot of times when patients are on immunosuppressive therapy, there's a concern, you know, can I go near my daughter. And, and I think that when we use immunosuppressive therapy, we are not completely knocking out the immune system. You know, we're not mm -hmm. treating it as chemotherapy. You still have an immune system that hopefully is effective in, in fighting off infections. So I would say that you want to try immunosuppressive monotherapy if you can, but when you need to use multiple immunosuppressive agents, you still have an immune system. Uh, you still have the ability to some extent to fight off infections. And when it's necessary, it needs to be tailored towards the aggressiveness of the rheumatic disease. Hmm. I think that's a good point. Uh, I'm going to turn over to, Dr. to you, Dr. Cho. Dr. Birnbaum and I have been talking for a little bit now. Um, there's a number Sam, of I questions. Just, I have one thing to add to, to that topic before you leave it. Oh, I, yeah, go I don't it. know how many... I don't know how many of uh, your members um, have a possible diagnosis of MS that's often on the differential for transverse myelitis. Mm -hmm. And uh, as some uh, providers um, offer MS medications for patients whose only manifestation is transverse myelitis, I would just uh, add that the interferons that are used, um, the injections that are the sort of traditional first-line medications in MS um, have been known to uh, exacerbate or worsen or cause a flare-up of some underlying um, 
autoimmune diseases or, or rheumatic diseases. So those medicines, um, I've had a few patients that I've uh, seen after they were seen by my MS colleagues, uh, and we ultimately uh, used medicines like Dr. Birnbaum mentioned, like uh, mycophenolate mofetil that might be beneficial for both MS or uh, lupus to avoid the, the risk with the, uh, the interferons. So I think it does bear um, mentioning that some of these medicines, uh, both for neurologic and neurologic diseases that can activate the immune system, um, sometimes rarely can trigger a flare-up of an underlying autoimmune disease, and, and we try to avoid those um, in those situations. Yeah, I, I appreciate that point. Um, I think, especially in the NMO world, I think it's been made pretty clear uh, in the literature um, that the interferons, like you said, that's, that, that are used in first-line MS meds exacerbate the NMO disease process. And there are certainly those patients who were diagnosed um, you know, before the advent of the NMO antibody that were treated like MS and had worse disease after that. Um, so I think in our world we think we think about MS interferons worsening um, NMO, uh, but we don't necessarily think a lot about if the transverse myelitis is from an underlying rheumatic condition that the um, the interferons normally used in multiple sclerosis might even exacerbate those conditions. Um, am I am I understanding that properly? Uh, yes. Uh even when it's due to MS, yeah. uh, I would not use MS, uh, you know, interferon specifically if they have an underlying rheumatic disease like lupus. Yeah. Um, and so uh, sticking with you, Dr. Cho, there's um, some of the questions came come in kind of relate to each other in this way. I think globally when we talk about rheumatic conditions and these rare neuroimmune conditions, patients kind of fall into two categories. There's those who have um, um, some kind of rheumatologic condition and then they develop uh, a, a neurologic manifestation of that disease like a transverse myelitis or uh, uh, they're then diagnosed with NMO that is uh, occurring alongside their lupus or whatever. And then there are those patients who have uh, transverse myelitis. And they're treated um, like a, 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 say, basically an idiopathic transverse myelitis. Um, and then a couple years later, they develop a, a rheumatic disease process. And then there's the question that the patients have that come up where is my TM, was that really a one-time event? Was that, or is this, was that the first manifestation of my lupus or my inflammatory arthritis? And should I be worried about uh, a reoccurrence of my neurologic conditions? Um, I think that this is a big unknown with that uh, kind of subpopulation of our patients, uh, specifically the TM patients, who for a few years have been told that this is an idiopathic one-time event. Now they have some kind of rheumatologic condition, inflammatory arthritis or what have you, and the fear of the unknown that they might have another attack of TM. Could you speak a little bit to kind of how you, as a as a medical provider, um, look at that kind of uh, case um, and how you monitor it? 
Sure. So that is a great question. And I guess the starting point for me would be what was the nature of the transverse myelitis? And I think of certain big buckets or categories. In patients who have a partial transverse myelitis that is only affecting one or two segments of their spinal cord, if the first question is do they have any other indications that they might have multiple sclerosis or be at high risk for developing multiple sclerosis. And I think that uh, pathway is well recognized by neurologists and it's kind of a routine workup. When patients present with, um, so, so the categories there would be a idiopathic transverse myelitis with no other indications of MS and those patients are at relatively low risk for having a recurrence, whereas mm -hmm. the patients who have any indication that they've had prior MRI findings that are suggestive of MS, even if they hadn't had symptoms, those patients are at high risk for developing MS. Yeah. When the lesion is larger, the transverse myelitis lesion is a longitudinally extensive lesion that is classically um, more compatible with NMO, then the sort of predictive algorithms are different and we know that patients who have the MO antibody are at high risk for recurrence. Now when uh, I see patients who have any kind of myelitis, whether it's short or long, I check for the NMO antibody as well as the myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein or MOG antibody which can sometimes mimic NMO and if those are positive then those patients bear treatment to prevent recurrence because we know the recurrence rate is high. If those antibodies are not present then it's a judgment uh, call uh, on the part of the patient and the physician about what the risk of recurrence is and whether they need to be on an immuno modulatory agent or immunosuppressive agent to prevent a recurrence. So in the patient that you're describing who has a, a prior transverse myelitis with a presumably negative workup for other signs of MS or antibodies for NMO who later develops symptoms and signs of an autoimmune rheumatologic condition, my immediate concern would be that the patient has NMO because of what we discussed earlier with the high rate of co-occurrence of NMO with other autoimmune diseases. And I would look hard, again, as we know the NMO test is not perfect. Sometimes on repeat testing it becomes positive. And so it's not that uh, having another autoimmune rheumatologic condition guarantees that you're going to have a recurrence if you've had transverse myelitis but I think it would make me suspicious enough that I would look again for NMO. And if it's still negative, then I think it's, uh, again, a, a gray zone that requires judgment uh, from the patient and physician on a case-by-case -case basis and also depends on how severe the, the nature of the rheumatologic symptoms are in terms of whether to, to treat. Um, so that's kind of a, a vague answer 
I think it really depends, uh, the, the risk for recurrence really depends on the nature of the original myelitis and whether it was a long segment or a short segment, whether there was any signs of MS, obviously whether the antibodies for NMO or MOG were present. And uh, my personal general take would be to follow those patients carefully uh, for any development of other neurologic symptoms and have a very low threshold for uh, treating them for uh, recurrence. Mm. Dr. Birnbaum, would you have anything to to add to Dr. Cho's statement? Well, yeah, the one thing I would think about is there's always these questions about when someone has you know, myelitis, um, and for the most part, be it like transverse myelitis or ADEM or neuromyostoptic, as Dr. Cho was saying, is the question's like, what's the relationship to the underlying rheumatic disease? And I think the understanding of this relationship has greatly changed over time. So, for example, in the 70s and 1970s, 1980s, um, MS, multiple sclerosis, and, and lupus were thought to have a similar mechanism um, and so that led to the term uh, of uh, comp combined together called lupoid sclerosis. Um, and I think that the treatment back then of MS and, and uh, lupus went uh, hand in hand. What we're recognizing now is that the disorders that we see, be it uh, NMOSD, neuromyosoptic, or ADEM, when they occur in a lupus patient, these are generally two disorders that are coincidental, meaning that the ADEM and the neuromyosoptica is not a direct extension of, of lupus or Sjogren's, but rather these are two distinct uh, autoimmune disorders. Now they share certain pathways and that's why the treatments that are useful for neuromyosoptica uh, can be used for lupus and vice versa. But really they do not share a overlapping uh, cause. So in, to be brief, um, lupus is not a causative disease that directly leads to neuromyosoptica. So these neurological disorders are not a direct manifestation of lupus or Sjogren's. They present in a coincidental fashion. And the reason why it's not unusual for a patient with one autoimmune disease to develop another autoimmune disease. So the same way that a patient with neuromyosoptica has a higher risk, for example, of autoimmune thyroid disease, or Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Um, that's why patients with, uh, with uh, lupus or Sjogren's, they had a higher risk of developing these neurological disorders. But that doesn't mean that they are directly causative. So again, they are um, coincidental. Um, there is a higher rate of these disorders co-occurring, but there really is a it needs to be a reformulation that these neurological disorders, such as ADEM, uh, neuromyosophica, they're not direct manifestations of rheumatological disease. Thank you. That's a that's a good point, um, Dr. Birnbaum. I'll I'll stay with you for this next question. It's a little bit more granular. Um, a lot of the rheumatic conditions we've been referencing are lupus um, and, and uh, others. But there's a question that came in uh, about a TM attack that was thought to be a part of Sjogren's syndrome. And the question is really is, how do you, how do you look for the onset of Sjogren's 
besides high um, ANA blood levels. So other than blood work, how do you really um, look for Sjogren's in particular in patients? And if, you, and if somebody comes to you with a transverse myelitis, um, uh, uh, would you, at what point do you start uh, going deeper than a blood work kind of diagnostics to, to rule out things like Sjogren's disease? So Sjogren's could be um, uh, challenging to diagnose, and sometimes the mean onset between the symptoms of uh, dry eyes and dry mouth um, and the diagnosis can be uh, 10 years. Um, it used to be about 10 years, and now with greater recognition of Sjogren's, that's back down to five years. Uh, the symptoms of dry eyes, dry mouth can be elusive in the beginning, so if you ask specifically for dry eyes and dry mouth, uh, you, you might uh, have an answer suggested that there's no underlying what we call sicker symptoms, but you have to probe a little bit deeper. So not just asking for dry eyes, but you know, can you wear contacts and uh, do you use artificial tears? And when you ask for dry mouth, um, you want to specifically on the examination, look under the tongue and see whether there's what we call saliva pooling there, which it should be or whether the uh, the mouth is uh, dry. So the syndrome of dry eyes, dry mouth, that might become obvious after years. They could be uh, somewhat subtle in the uh, beginning. Um, we want to have tests which prove that the eyes are dry. And these are generally not done widely in, in ophthalmology offices, and they probably should be. Um, and there's tests such as taking out a, a tear strip and seeing how wet the tear strip becomes. And you actually measure this when you put it in the corner of the eyes and you could see how much moisture wicks out. Um, and again, the, we want to have uh, cardinal uh, serological features, blood markers, and these tend to be certain antibodies such as uh, called anti-Rho and anti-Y antibodies. Um, if these antibodies are negative and there's a high suspicion for um, Sjogren's and we do a, a lip biopsy, um, and this is looking for characteristic findings um, in ducts of certain patterns of inflammation. So if you take that work up together, it could be uh, laborious sometimes. And how detailed the work needs to be depends upon uh, how much uh, the symptoms crop up um, at the beginning. So again, uh, Sjogren's could be under-recognized, and a lot of times these symptoms of dry eyes, dry mouth are somewhat marginalized, um, and they're not thought to be, for example, as worthy of attention as the severe you know, heart-lung disease that, that occurs in, uh, in lupus. But these symptoms are going to be quite distressing. Um, and I think Sjogren's is being uh, raised to be more on the radar screen of everybody. And I think pretty much what Dr. Cho says is, is, is I totally agree. When you have someone with a myelitis, um, antedating or coming before Sjogren's syndrome, um, you want to be more uh, specific about what the nature of that myelitis attack is. So again, like he said, it's, you know, are we dealing with a partial myelitis? Uh, are we dealing with something that might be on the spectrum of multiple sclerosis or, you know, and especially when we, I agree, when we do see a Sjogren's patient, we're very, very suspicious for uh, neuromyelitis optica um, popping up. But again, you know, these are disorders that tend to co-occur because they're both autoimmune diseases that share a certain 
features what we call the antibodies are being churned out. But at the end of the day, you want to um, precisely categorize what the nature and type of the myelitis um, attack presented as. Um, but again, if it is, for example, normalized optica, um, it should be regarded as a coincidental disease co-occurring, but it's not a direct manifestation of the Sjogren's. So again, just to summarize, the, the diagnosis of Sjogren's needs to be um, worked up in detail. Um, and what Dr. Cho says, um, the myelitis needs to be categorized. And ultimately, even if it is normalized optica, it's going to prove not to be directly caused by Sjogren's. Hmm. Uh, Dr. Is, uh, Cho, do Dr. you have... Cho, I, yeah. yeah, I would love to... Uh, I'm glad Dr. Brumbaum reemphasized that. I was going to uh, echo what he said about neuromyelitis optica being an additional disease that is causing the myelitis in these cases that happens to occur in someone who also has Sjogren's. So getting back to the, the question as it was framed, I guess I don't routinely look for Sjogren's syndrome in someone who has a longitudinal myelitis as the cause for that myelitis, um, but there are certain forms of symptoms like, uh, in particular, if it's sensory-only symptoms that sometimes can imitate a myelitis, uh, th the dorsal root ganglia, the, the nerve cells just outside the spinal cord that control sensation can sometimes be affected by Sjogren's syndrome, and that's a very specific syndrome for Sjogren's that would make me look hard for it, even in someone who never had dry eyes or dry mouth or the other symptoms. So I think Dr. Brumbaum's point is uh, I agree with completely that, you know, 15 years ago when someone had myelitis, looking for Sjogren's was part of the workup when we thought Sjogren's was causing the myelitis. What we now know is that the almost all of those cases where someone ended up with uh, myelitis and Sjogren's was because they had NMO in addition to their Sjogren's. And so it's rare that someone has what would be termed a Sjogren's myelitis without NMO. And I, you know, there are no very few uh, things in medicine that are 100%. So it's not that it's impossible, but I think that most neurologists who deal with myelitis now would assume that the the two are co-occurring rather than being caused by the Sjogren's. Hmm. An interesting point, Dr. Cho. Um, as we get into the last 10 to 15 minutes, there's one um, kind of group of questions that, that came in uh, uh, that are more about symptomatic management, um, really specifically about pain and sensation changes. Uh, often we see that with transverse myelitis, whether it be in the context of an idiopathic event or um, NMOSD, but we also see uh, pain and sensation changes with different rheumatologic conditions, as you all have been uh, discussing. So the questions that have come in really, really asking, are there any practical suggestions regarding pain management? Um, uh, since this is a big challenge with just singularly with these disorders on their own, but then if you, you combine them together um, that potentially have different, different reasons why the pain exists, do you all, have, as clinicians, have practical advice on how to, how to manage the pain, whether it be through uh, pharmaceutical in interventions, 
physical therapy, other kinds of pain management um, that you work with. Dr. Cho, would you like to uh, start off answering that question? Sure. Uh, it's a good and tough question. I think <laughs> my my short answer is that uh, we have a sort of limited arsenal for neuropathic pain that all uh, physicians turn to the same list. And those are not generally as effective for inflammatory pain in other structures outside the nervous system as are seen in rheumatologic disorders. There are some patients who have vague rheumatologic symptoms that are not necessarily directly due to inflammation. Some of those patients may have some relief in their sort of general body aches and pains with medications that we often use for nerve pain, in particular the tricyclic antidepressants like nortriptyline or amitriptyline or the uh, other category that we often use are the gabapentin and um, pregabalin. But in general, I would say that you probably have to treat the nature of the pain depending on whether it is specifically affecting the nerves or the spinal cord, uh, somewhat independently from the rheumatologic symptoms. But I would defer to Dr. Birnbaum on the symptomatic treatment for the type of pain that is seen more often in lupus and rheumatoid arthritis and other rheumatologic autoimmune conditions. Um, yeah, no, I agree. It's, it could be a very, very um, tough issue to manage. The interesting thing is when we see rheumatic diseases like uh, lupus or Sjogren's, they could develop very debilitating um, sensory neuropathies, and these neuropathies can have a predilection for attacking very, very tiny nerves, and it causes a, a small fiber neuropathy. And certain features of small fiber neuropathies are, are similar to uh, uh, myelopathy, so it's pain that can be diffuse in nature and can be refractory or not responding to one medication. So a lot of the medications that we use for neuropathic pain are also used in uh, seizure disorders. So the uh, treatment paradigm in seizure disorders that may have relevance for neuropathic pain is the mantra of uh, treat towards efficacy or toxicity. And when you treat neuropathic pain under that paradigm, there's an explicit awareness at the outset that hopefully when you ramp up the dosage, there'll be relief of pain, but there very well may be the experience of unpleasant side effects. But that's the, the, uh, the therapeutic window between success and treatment side effects um, is very, very narrow in neuropathic pain, and I think that needs to be stated at the outset. So what we tend to see is uh, patients treated with neuropathic pain um, who do not have dosages which are high enough to treat and provide some efficacy. Now, oftentimes there's, these treatments are not tolerated because of side effects, 
But again, you want to commit to a treatment and you want to ride that treatment wave until there's some demonstration of success. And then the other thing is that often does not do is uh, the combination of, of treatments for neuropathic pain, and that's polypharmacy. So sometimes polypharmacy, more than one medication, gets a bad rap. And that's true if there's no rational design for why you're using polypharmacy. But when it comes to neuropathic pain, if you combine symptomatic treatments and each of those medications have different mechanisms of action, then there's a rational use of these medications. And polypharmacy is actually the way to go. So, you know, by and large, you can mix and match uh, treatment uh, for neuropathic pain depending upon mechanisms and depending upon what patients are saying. But I think that um, often when it comes to neuropathic pain, um, the dosages have been too low and there's not a commitment towards using two agents. Often you try one agent and if it doesn't use, you, you, you drop it. Um, and again, that's not to say this is going to be a panacea uh, for, all for all patients, but hopefully that will pr provide a window so that there is some um, alleviation of pain. Very interesting. Thank you both for that. Um, in the last five minutes or so of the podcast, I wanted to uh, turn it over to Dr. Birnbaum and Dr. Cho to kind of give us their kind of rounding out final thoughts, takeaways for the conversation today, uh, specifically for those members of our community who have these dual diagnoses of, of uh, transverse myelitis or NMO um, and a rheumatologic condition. Um, and, and things to think about, things to, to, to keep in your arsenal as you're working with your um, uh, healthcare team, um, questions to, to have in mind. Um, and so if I can uh, start with you, Dr. Cho, um, any final thoughts or takeaways you have from the conversation today? Yes, I think that uh, Dr. Birnbaum is a good example of why you need good communication between your neurologist and rheumatologist. So he can just talk to himself, but for everyone else in the country, if if you have a, a rheumatologist um, for your rheumatologic autoimmune disorder, you still need a neurologist if you have neurological symptoms, and in particular if you have transverse myelitis. And it is not straightforward how those interact. And so you can see even on the same questions, uh, Dr. Birnbaum and I have you know, di slightly different perspectives, even though we have a lot of overlap, just by the nature of uh, our training and the types of patients that we see most often and the types of medicines that we use routinely. So I think it's essential to have concerted care with experts who talk to each other, and it is always good to ask those experts about any new symptoms that you have, whether it could, re if it's neurologic, whether it could be any recurrence of your myelitis, and then asking the rheumatologist whether the neurologic symptoms could be related to the rheumato rheumatologic disease. And then again, on the, on the treatment side, to ask each physician whether the treatment that you're getting for the one condition may have any impact on the other condition. Mm. Dr. Birnbaum, your thoughts? 
I, I totally agree. I think that um, communication between neurologists and rheumatologists is, is absolutely essential. Um, one of the things that honestly drives me crazy is if a patient um, has seen a neurologist or rheumatologist that has a very, very complicated um, disease course and a lot of different therapeutic options, and she comes to me, or even on follow-up, she says, well, my doctor says uh, to tell me why I should try treatment A or B or C. And that's not fair to you because, you know, you're, you're already dealing with a complex illness. And then to encumber you to be the primary person who acts as a physician um, is, is really not fair. So um, the, the, the physician-neurologist um, a conversation should happen uh, with other physicians. And you should be involved, but you shouldn't be uh, a sounding board um, and in the place of direct contact between neurologists and rheumatologists. So I, I agree. And, and, and I see just too often um, uh, patients being put in the way and having to deal with that. And, and I don't think that's fair. Um, yeah. The other thing I will say is that I would very, very... It's not often, but be careful about if you have a diagnosis of an inflammatory neurological disorder, when you have a, a new diagnosis of rheumatological disorder pops up, be very, very careful because a lot of these so-called antibodies, these blood markers that are thought to be somewhat specific for rheumatic disorders, they can occur in neurological disorders. So having an uh, antibody blood marker that could be seen in lupus or Sjogren's is, is not sufficient. You need to have the signs and the symptoms. So mm. I would tread very, very carefully and really make sure that you have a rheumatologist that you trust. Um, if you're presenting with a new diagnosis of rheumatic disease, make sure that it's an actual disease defined by symptoms and examination findings and not just a, a blood marker because sometimes the rheumatic disease diagnosis can be um, quite uh, questionable. So really um, have that diagnosis fully, uh, have that uh, di discussion fully with your rheumatologist. Mm. Thank you. That is an important point. And like you both said, was as we know so much in all of our lives, communication is key. And and I I hear so much from patients. A lot of times what they have to be when they have multiple physicians is, is basically the communication liaison uh, between them. Um, and so uh, it's, it's important to be sensitive to that. I, I agree with that as well. So um, to, to finish off our podcast today, I want to thank you both, Dr. Birnbaum and Dr. Cho, for your time and your expertise uh, sharing that with the community today. Um, thank you to everybody who sent in questions and is listening out there uh, and all the members of the community who participate in this. We appreciate your time as well. Um, uh, be looking forward to uh, the next podcast at the beginning of 2018. Um, and uh, until then, I hope everybody has a happy holiday season and happy new year. Uh, so, um, and everybody has a great week as well. Thank you all very much.